preached a couple of times on a, a few of the miracles of Elisha, Naaman you know, in particular, and the widow at Zarephath. But um, other than that, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time on Elisha. So it's been good for me. We saw him back in 1 Kings chapter 19 when, when Elijah was very discouraged. Um, God called Elisha. Um, Elijah thought he was the only one left, but he said, I've got 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee, and I've got one that's going to take your place when I take you away from here. And that man was Elisha, a plowboy, plowing a field. And the mantle of Elijah dropped at his feet, and, um, and he understood what that meant, and, um, and he went all in. He went all in. He, he, he stopped his plowing, um, built a fire with the implements of, um, of the plowing, and, and sacrificed his oxen, or, or actually made a supper with his oxen and went all in to become a servant and a student of Elijah. He, he was, he was um, obedient to the word of God. He sacrificed everything that he had and he was faithful to the task that God gave him to be Elijah's servant. It was interesting to me that after his calling and his leaving to follow Elijah, there's not another word mentioned about him um, and all that Elijah did until the day that it was time for Elijah to take God home. And then we're, we see Elisha still by his side, willing to go all the way with him, even to the end. Uh, he knew that his end was coming, and he went with him all the way to the end. Remind me of what Jesus said about his disciples, that um, having loved those that God gave him in the world, he loved them to the end. And Elisha did that with Elijah. Um, the reason, the, the, the request that he made before Elijah parted was a double portion of his spirit. And God poured that out upon him. And uh, that was manifested in his first miracle in the parting of the Jordan so that he could go back across. And then last week we talked about his healing of the waters at Jericho and those people who had been under that curse being uncursed by the ministry of Elisha. And then we talked about the she-bear that came out of the woods while he was on his way to um, Bethel and 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 mauled those 42 young men who came out against him. I, I tried to clarify that doesn't necessarily mean it was little kids. The words that are used there um, were applied to Joseph at 39, Absalom when he was an adult in rebellion against David, and Solomon at 20. So it just means young, unimportant, insignificant men came out to mock him, to ridicule him, to, to tell him that they did not want what he had to offer. And so those that had... Uh, th those were they were cursed, um, and and I, I don't know. Maybe last week's message was more for me than any than anybody because if you go into, I think this maybe was a lesson for Elisha at the beginning of his ministry. When you're doing what the Lord called you to do, there are going to be people that that want to hear what you have to say, are ready to receive what you want to say, and will appreciate what you have to say. Um, and and if they if they hear, believe, and apply what God is speaking through His prophet concerning His word, um, they'll be blessed. Um, on the other hand, there's going to be people who will not receive what you have to say. They'll mock you. They'll reject you. They'll ridicule you. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. They surely don't want to receive it, and they bring that curse upon themselves. It's the same minister doing, doing the work, the same words that's being proclaimed, but people will either hear it and believe it or reject it um, outright and be cursed by it. So um, today begins... Elisha's ministry to kings, although Elijah only had influence in one king, particular, particularly Ahab, um, we see Elisha having ministry to a number of kings, um, four very, a very close um, ministry 
um, was attached to Elisha's life and these kings. But today begins his ministry to kings, and we're going to see three of them today in our text. All three of them are from different nations, but all three of them have a common purpose. I should say this, a common problem and a common purpose in overcoming that problem. I want to give you their names, and then we're going to start reading through the text. Because when you start studying kings, it is some of the most confusing study that you'll ever do in the Bible for a couple of different reasons. Um, in Kings and in Chronicles, sometimes the name won't even be the same. It's a, there, there are variations in the kings and their names, um, how one man recorded it and how another man recorded it. And, and, and that's the case in the story today. We're going to talk about a man named um, Jehoram. Um, but just a few chapters beyond this, his name is changed to Joram. And you know it's the same man because he's called Ahab's son that reigned over Israel. The reason I think that his name was changed is that Jehoshaphat had a son that he named Jehoram, and so the writer differentiated between those two sons. But it can get very confusing. Um, I didn't even mention that name, Joram, to confuse you today. We're going to call him Jehoram. Um, but later on, that you'll see that name shift even in the book of Kings. So, so what, what the Bible tells us is that he was Ahab's first son was Ahaziah. He's very wicked like his father. He didn't last very long, fell down through a lattice in his upper chambers and subsequently died from that. And so Ahab's second son, Jehoram, came to rule in his place and he was the ruler over Israel. Jehoshaphat was, was um, Asa was a godly king. And, um, and led the nation of Judah in some reforms. And Jehoshaphat was his son and, and followed in the footsteps of his father Asa. He was also a godly king and he was ruling over Judah at this time. And then we have an unnamed king. It's just, he's just called the king of Edom. Edom, Edom was, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And um, they passed through the land of Edom to get where they were going. And the king of Edom joined them. He saw this, I think, as an opportunistic alliance to gain the upper hand over Moab. But I'm going I'm to read a few verses and, and pause and just kind of make sure everybody's on the same page in the narrative. And then we'll come back and draw some application out of it. Second Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Now Jehoram the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria... Over Israel and Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So the first thing we learn in this text is that Jehoram, the king over Israel, the northern kingdom, is not as bad as Ahab was. He's not as bad as his mother Jezebel was. Um, he's not as bad even as Ahaziah, his older brother, had been. Um, he put away the image of Baal. That doesn't mean he destroyed it. He just put it aside and went through the pretense of worship. The reference there to, to um um, to Jeroboam is when the kingdom divided itself. Solomon's two sons reigned in different places. In the northern kingdom, they set up golden calves at Bethel and at Dan so that the people of the northern kingdom wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship. And so um, what, what he was guilty of, what, what um, Jehoram was guilty of, is that he was just still going through a pretense of worship. He laid aside the idolatry, but he was still not being obedient to God. He was worshiping in the wrong place. He was worshiping the wrong ways. So it was just a pretense of worship. He's not as bad as it had been, um, but he's still bad. He didn't go far enough 
in his, uh, in his reformations like many of the kings of Judah did. Verse 4 said, And Mesha king of Moab was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat the king of Judah saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he, that is Jehoshaphat, said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he, that is Jehoram, asked a question to Jehoshaphat, Which way shall we go up? And Jehoshaphat answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So Moab was essentially paying taxes to Israel. Ahab forced Moab um, in, in some kind of... Um, in some kind of working out, maybe of war terms, um, that Moab had to pay taxes to Israel to keep Israel from attacking them, and it was a significant. It was a significant tax. Um, I think I don't know how often he had to do this, but I'm assuming yearly um, that the king of Moab had given to Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool, and so. Um, that, was, that, was a big, that was a big deal in that day. That was a big tax that had been levied against this nation. But when Ahab died, Moab said, we ain't doing that anymore. And so um, he made an alliance with, with uh, two different kings. And it was, it was, they were very different kings in that um, Jehoram was ungodly. He was of Israel, but he was ungodly. Jehoshaphat was of Judah. He was godly. Um, Edom was completely separated from the nation of Israel, but he joined himself because they passed through his land, and he saw this as an opportunity. I think the, the one reason that maybe Jehoram asked Jehoshaphat for help is because he's a young man. Jehoshaphat has experience at war, and so he wanted to, he, wanted to um, he had enough army, he felt comfortable with his army, but he wanted Jehoshaphat to join his forces with him and to advise him on the, and, and we see the advice, where, where do we go, how do we attack? And Jehoshaphat said, this is the way that we go to attack. And then look at verse 9. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah, signifying his service to Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, Elijah is speaking to Jehoram now and said, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father, to the prophets of thy mother, Ahab and Jezebel. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. 
So they made no inquiry of the Lord prior to going to battle. They didn't ask the Lord if this is what they should do, if this is the way that they should go. They didn't ask the Lord anything. Um, they just made assumptions that it was God's will for them to attack uh, Moab and made assumptions that it was God's will for them to go through the land of Edom. And, and they reached that place seven days into their journey. They discovered we have no more water. Um, we're thirsting to death. Our cattle are thirsting to death, and we have no water. And so... Um, Jehoram came to the conclusion that God was going to destroy them there in the wilderness that Moab would come against them in their weakness and defeat them and he saw that because he had seen what God had done to Ahab what God had done to his brother Ahaziah and he believed that he was also under the judgment of God and Jehoshaphat alongside of him Um, and and, and it's interesting how both of those kings responded Um, Jehoram said we're under the judgment of God And Jehoshaphat said, wait a minute, let's seek out a prophet of God so that we can learn from him what we need to do. Elisha rebuked Jehoram. He said, what have I to do with you? Um, But at the same time, he said, because you have Jehoshaphat with you, for Jehoshaphat's sake, I'm going to speak to you um, because of your alliance with Jehoshaphat. Go to verse 15. But now bring me a minstrel, um, which is a musician, and it came to pass when the... When the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him, that is, came upon Elisha. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, You shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beast. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also, into your hands. He essentially said, all you've asked for is water. But God's going to do more than give you water. He's going to deliver the Moabites into your hand. You shall smite every fenced city and every you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. So, so I just want to pause and point you and we're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. Um, but before Elisha gave them an answer, um, I, I, and I think he was angry um, at Jehoram and the way that Jehoram was leading, um, uh, he, I, you know, you can sense his indignation. He said, I would not even look at you had it not been for Jehoshaphat being present with you. But for Jehoshaphat's sake, I'm going to ask the Lord to tell me what you should do. So, so he, 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 he worshipped God, and then he heard God speak and, give, and gave that advice to these two kings. Let's finish up the chapter, and then I'll come back and help you under, uh, see, where, see what all this is about, hopefully. Verse 20 said, It came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered, that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forth smiting the Moabites even in their country. And they beat down the cities on every good piece of land, cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in 
Karaseth. Some of these words are difficult. Um, only in Karaseth left they the stones thereof. Howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. That was the capital city. And they, they levied their catapults. They, they busted the walls of the city with rocks. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the, upon the wall. He's calling upon the God of Chemosh um, to help them in their resistance against um, Israel, Judah, and Edom. And there was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. That last verse is a little bit hard to interpret. I don't know who was the angriest at Israel. Maybe Moab was angry at Israel. Maybe God was angry at Israel. That, that last verse is very hard to see what's going on there. But there's a double miracle that occurred in those verses. That God not only provided them um, water for the, for the provision of Israel, Judah, and Edom. But he also used that water to fool the Moabites into thinking that those nations had come against each other and had slain each other. That happened in other times in the scripture, that they had slain each other and the Moabites saw an opportunity just to go in and rake in the spoils, just to go in and take what those armies had been left behind. So he provided for Israel and Judah, quenched their thirst, um, revived them, refreshed them, and at the same time he brought delusion um, upon Moab so that they were drawn in and subsequently um, destroyed. So working back through this, I know you say, where are you going with all this? I want to show you the mess, the messenger, the music, the message, and the miracle and show you how it applies to our lives, I think. The mess is this, Israel is falling apart. God had pronounced judgment on the family of Ahab. In fact, he said that he would wipe the family of Ahab from the face of the earth I'm not going to tell you the language that the scripture uses. We will read it when we get there. But he basically said there's not going to be a man left of you. There's not going to be anybody from Ahab's family that will be able to be king over this nation anymore. Spiritually, they were absolutely bankrupt. Um, they had sold themselves to the enemy. They, they, were, they were given into demonic influences. Um, they were taking people's land by force, even if it required killing them to get it. Um, Israel is morally bankrupt. The only thing that they probably still had going for them is they had some, some profitable land. They were prospering um, in, some of the, in some of the taxes that they were forcing people. One of the problems that they had allowed people to come back into their land that practiced um, idolatry um, just so they could tax them to live in the nation of Israel. But when Moab pulled that huge support away from Israel, now they're not only failing spiritually, now they're failing materially. Now um, their, sus their substance is beginning to wane away, and Jehoram sees that he has to do something um, to put a plug in that hole. And, and so he went to Je Je Jehoshaphat, a godly king, and Jehoshaphat made an unholy alliance. He'd, he'd done the same thing with Ahab, and it almost cost him his life. They were coming after him thinking he was Ahab because Ahab went and he, and you can go read that story a couple chapters back. Um, but now he's making another unholy alliance with, with Ahab's son, um, Jehoram. Um, nobody asked God about what they were supposed to do. Even though Jehoshaphat was a godly king, nobody inquired of God what his will was in this, in this whole um, situation. And, um, and, and, and then they reached that place where they had no water. They were stuck and in danger of being overthrown by an army. So, so that's the mess. That's the mess that Israel's in. And, and, and listen to me. I, I believe this 
I think that you can look at this story and look at what brought them there. And what we'll find out is that the, the, most of the messes that are in our life, in our marriage, in our church, in our businesses, in our nation is we have misplaced priorities, we have unholy alliances, and we move forward without God too often. Um, we move into places God didn't tell us to move. We have ambitions and misplaced priorities that God didn't tell us to have. We make unholy alliances with unbelievers in order to try to advance our ambitions and, 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 and get ahead in our, in our selfish uh, ambitions. We forge ahead. We're misguided by our emotions. We're not hearing from God. We're without God. We, we, we forge ahead and we engage ourselves in relationships that are not real. They're fake. Um, we are unequally yoked together and we are spiritually blind. Now, um, I'm not, just, just think about what brought them to this place and then consider your own life, your own marriage, your own ch uh, this church, businesses, and our whole nation. America's in trouble. Spiritually, we're morally bankrupt. And if you look at where we're headed financially, we're in a lot of the same kind of place that Israel is. And, 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 and while, we're, while we're worried more about our finances like Israel was, we ought to be more worried about our spiritual condition um, because the two are directly related together when nations are in covenant with God about their future. And, and so um, that, that, that whole business of having a misplaced priority, making material things more important than spiritual things, forming unholy alliances in order that you can try to advance yourself or regain what you have lost in those alliances and moving forward without asking God. Um, that, puts us in a, that puts everybody in a vulnerable place. That puts you in a vulnerable place if that's you individually. That puts your marriage in a vulnerable place if that's where you're at. It puts a church in a vulnerable place. It puts a nation in a vulnerable place. It makes us weak. It leaves us confused. It will put us in a place of despair and make us an easy target for the enemy and even subject to the just judgment of God. The good news is... That sometimes it's only the mess that moves us towards God. Now they got in this place and they realized we've, we're seven days into this journey. We're literally standing outside of the nation that we hate and that they hate us. And we don't have any water and you can't live very long. I've heard, you know, three days without water. You can live a considerable, considerably longer without food, but you can't live long without water. And um, if you've ever been dehydrated, you know all that that does to you very quickly when you get dehydrated. And so they're just in a bad place. And, um, and, and, and Jehoram, knowing his spiritual condition, said God's about to judge us and destroy all three nations. I'm using the king of Moab to do so. Jehoshaphat, who's in a much better place spiritually, although he's made some poor decisions thus far, saw the mess and said, now's the time for us to seek God. We need to hear from a prophet of God. We need to hear from somebody um, that has the hand of God upon their life. And let's just be honest for a minute. There's a lot of times that we, don't, that, that we, get, way out of, we get way out of bounds. We, our priorities get all out of whack. Um, we link ourselves up with people that we should never have linked ourselves up with. We keep moving in the direction that we want to go without asking God about His will for our lives, about whether this is right, about whether this is good, about whether He's going to receive any glory out of it. We just keep moving forward until we find ourselves stuck in a bad, bad place. Um, and and, and, and the, the only positive thing about this is it's true in our lives as it was in Israel. Sometimes that's the only thing that turns our heart back to seek the word of God. Maybe we're there as a nation. I'm, I'll tell you the last few days I've seen some promising signs that we're getting fed up with the foolishness. But it doesn't, it doesn't just need to be, be 
um, the political realm that we're um, that we're concerned about. It doesn't need to just be um, our finances that we're concerned about. Um, we really need to look in our hearts and see where we are with God and go and, and, and ask Him to speak into our lives and to, and to uncover that within us that's, that's hindering us from being who He wants us to be and going where He wants us to go. Let me move on. The mess. The only good thing about the mess is it drove the nation of Israel and Judah and Edom to pursue a word from God, to seek a word from God. Then the messenger, a plowboy, a former plowboy, the servant that knew about him said, oh, this is all I know about him, but he washed Elijah's hands. He walked alongside of Elijah as a servant and as a student. And so now this former plowboy that had been a servant and a student of Elijah has three kings knocking on his door asking for him to pursue God on their behalf, to get a word from God on their behalf. Now, normally, here's what would happen. If a king wanted to see somebody, the king, most important person there, the king would have sent a servant, the king would have sent a messenger to Elisha and say, come to me. In fact, Ahab did that, uh, I think, in the first chapter of of Second uh, Kings. Um, he, he, didn't, he didn't go to Elijah. Uh, he sent people to bid Elijah to come to him. Um, but these kings were not, they were not sending anybody to Elisha. They went themselves. So a former plowboy, a hand washer for Elijah, has three kings knocking on his door asking God to be, uh, asking him to intercede to God on their behalf. Now, here's what I want to say about that. Aspire to be like Elisha. I think God wants us all to be his messengers. I think God wants every born-again, blood-washed child of God who has the Spirit of God living in him to be like Elisha. And, and, and what is Elisha like? Um, he had a reputation of being a servant to other people. He had a reputation of being a helper to other people. Um, the servant that introduced Elisha to these kings said he was Elijah's hand washer. Have a reputation of being a servant to the people of God. Have a reputation of having a knowledge of the word of God. You know what Jehoshaphat said about Elisha? Um, although, although the servant said he was the one that washed Elijah's hands, Jehoshaphat said he knows what God's word says. He, he is knowledgeable of the word of God. Let's talk to him because he knows what God said. Thirdly, notice that he, he was unaffected altogether by the audience that he was speaking to. He had one very ungodly king. He had one godly king. He had one king that was completely indifferent to spiritual things altogether. But he was completely unaffected by the audience. He didn't change his word. He didn't change his message. He didn't, he didn't treat the situation any differently. Uh, he, he, he was not affected by the audience. He was willing to rebuke the one that needed to, to be rebuked. And he was willing to instruct the one who asked to be uh, instructed. Um, he was sensitive to the Spirit of God. Well, let me say that a different way. He was sensitive to his own spirit um, before he pursued the spirit of God. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dig in that a little bit more in a minute. But Elisha knew if I say what's on um, if I say what's on my heart and in my mouth right now, it probably ain't going to be from God. It's going to be from Elisha. Now, can you imagine? He'd already said some of it to Jehoram. If it wasn't for the man standing next to you, I wouldn't even look at you. Because he knew about the idolatry. He knew about the ungodliness. And at the same time, he probably would have said to Jehoshaphat, what are you doing linking up with that heathen? 
What are you doing joining him in the mess that he's about to get himself into? But before he said a word to them, before he answered them, uh, before he even tried to answer their question, he said, bring me some music. Bring me some music. He wanted, he, he wanted to speak clearly what God would have him to say. So he said, bring me a musician. You remember in, when, when David was a servant to King Saul? And the Bible says that, that King Saul was troubled by an evil spirit. And the Bible said that David played his harp. And, and that Saul was comforted, and the evil spirit departed. There's something about music, and I, you know, I don't know. I know, I know, I know that if I understand the Bible correctly, um, that the one that we now call Satan um, was once called Lucifer, the shining one, and that he evidently was a leader of heaven's choir in some sense of the word. That when God created him, he had a miraculous gift of music in singing the praise of God. But he got lifted up with pride and fell from that place. Went into a full-blown rebellion against God. But there's something about worship. There's something about worship. I've told you this when, I, when I've battled that season of anxiety. Um, one, of the, one of the things that helped me the most... And that whole season was coming over here and singing worship songs. And, I, and I, you know, I know a lot of the old hymns better than I do the new stuff. But I'd walk around the sanctuary in the dark singing, How Great Thou Art. Singing, Without Him, I could do nothing. Without Him, I'd surely fail. Walking around here singing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And I could feel it. Just It was, like, it was almost like the, just the anxiety would just slip away and my spirit would be comforted and then I could get into the word of God and hear from God in his word but until my spirit was released from its troubled place um, through worship I didn't hear very clearly what God wanted to say to me so there's something about music that evicts the flesh now Elisha was probably in a very fleshly place right now I mean, he, he knows what he wants to say, and he knows what he wants to do. He probably wants to say, Jehoshaphat, if you're going to form an unholy alliance with this heathen, y'all go on ahead. Go on, march right on into Moab in your weakness and let them destroy you. That, that may have been what his flesh wanted. He, he, he may have said, I'm not saying anything to either one of you because of the wickedness of Jehoram. But Elisha knew better. Than to, than to speak for God when he was full of his own flesh. Elisha knew better than to speak for God when he may have even been under some kind of a demonic influence trying to get him to speak a, a, a word that did not come from God. But worship somehow opens our ears and opens our hearts to hear the voice of God. So I don't want to belabor this point, but, but th th I've pondered this thing for a long time. I honestly had forgotten about this passage of Scripture where Elisha asked for music, but it reminded me so much of what was said to, to, um, about David and Saul and playing the music. And so I've thought about this often just because of that David-Saul episode. And I, th I thought about it when I was going through that season where my spirit was so troubled. 
There's something about rhythm. There's something about rhyme. There's something about a melody um, that, that just soothes a troubled spirit. We, we recognize that. If you look at the musical scales in a songbook, um, it's, 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 it's mathematical. I mean, all of that, all of that every little note in that means something. Uh, every, every line means something. Um, and, 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 you, and you put it all together and it brings that rhythm, it brings that rhyme, it brings that melody, it brings that harmony. It soothes our spirit and it helps us see truth more easily. Now, I think deception is discordant. It, it's not in harmony. Um, you people that are musicians can understand this better than most of us, but even those of us who are not real musically inclined, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're drawn into a musical performance, I, I hate to call it that, but if you're, if you're drawn in, if you've gone into that emotional, that, that, that soothing, that healing, and, and something suddenly gets off-key, or something clashes that's out of the rhythm. Um, or somebody sings and they're not in harmony with the rest of them. What are you immediately drawn to? That you, you forget the rhythm, you forget the rhyme, you forget the melody, you forget all of that. And you rush to that. Where's that coming from? It's, dis, it's, it's discordant. It, it, it is not in harmony. It brings, it brings strife. We want that part to go away, don't we? Whatever it is, stop doing that. Let's get back to what sounded good. Stop doing that. It brings strife. It brings confusion. The voice of heaven isn't in strife and confusion. The Bible said God's not the author of it. He's not in um, the disharmony. And, and, and so there's something, about, there's something about music that that opens the heart to hear from God. So... I think there's wisdom in worshiping, and, and, and I, I'm going to move on from this because the main part that I, I want to get across to you is next, but there's wisdom in worshiping. Before you pray, worship. Y'all know how we usually go into, when we, a lot of times when we start praying, our spirit is troubled already. We're conflicted and confused, and we're here and, I don't know about y'all, but if I just rush into prayer, sometimes whatever I was doing last is still on my mind, and, and I'm very distracted when I try to pray. Worship before you read. Worship before you try to hear from God, because worship will help drain that trouble out of you. Worship will help soothe your spirit. Worship will open your ears and open your heart so that you can hear more clearly from God. I would say worship before you witness to others. Worship um, before you seek God for a specific direction in your life. Just spend some time worshiping. I, I can't tell you that I can explain it completely, but God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. God is, God is a God of, of harmony, not a God of confusion. And we, when we enter into his presence with thanksgiving and enter into his presence with praise, the Bible says God inhabits those praises and we can hear him more clearly. So worship before you do any of those things. Elisha worshipped and God spoke to him in that moment of worship and told him 
what he would do. And then there's the message, and this is the title of the sermon, and I think this is the heart of what, of what um, God wants to say to us this morning. The message was simple. I mean, they're in this valley. They're thirsting to death. Moab is right beyond them. Um, one is convinced that this is the judgment of God. The other says, I don't know what to do, but we're going to ask God. And Elisha soothes his spirit and music and, and, and seeks God's face and hears the word of God. And what God says, make this valley full of ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. Now, let, let, me, let me give you another way to interpret that, another way to say that. It's essentially God saying, before I do what I'm about to do, before I do what only I can do, this is what I want you to do. Dig ditches. Now, here's the thing. God said, I'm going to send water, and, and I'm, I'm going to fill this valley with water. You're not going to see any, you're not going to see any wind. You're not going to see any rain. And I'm going to fill this valley full of water. You need something to catch it. Because when I send the water flowing through this valley, if you don't have something to catch it, it'll just flow right on through. And if you don't create a space to catch what I'm about to send, that only I can send, if you don't make a place for it, it won't do anything for you. It's just going to roll right on through. We need to create spaces in our life for God to do what only He can do. We need to create spaces in our life for God to fill. Let me tell you how you dig ditches in your life. I'm just going to give you a short list. You probably can come up with some other ways. Repent of any known sin. You know what the Bible says? If we regard sin in our heart, Lord's not going to hear us. What does that mean? If we're cherishing sin, if we're holding on to it, if we know that we got it but we refuse to admit it, God not, He's not speaking to us in that. So what do you do? Dig a ditch. Repent of sin. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to lay aside the sin. Lay it aside. If you, wanted, if you want God to fill your life, um, He can't do it when your life is full of sin. He won't do it when your life is full of sin. There's a separation that occurs um, when we allow sin, when we regard sin in our heart, when we cherish it in our heart, when iniquity is filling up our life. If we, if we, if we want to hear from God, repent of sin. Um, lay aside distractions. I say this oftentimes when, I, when we come in here um, to worship and to hear from God's Word. Man, we get so distracted by so many things that we can't hear from God. And I think God's saying, lay aside that. Put that down for a minute. Put, create a space for me to give you what only I can give you. Lay aside. It may not be sinful, but right now you need to put that aside. You need to make space for me to do what I can do. Um, I think, honestly, what I just talked about, I think when you worship, you create a space. When you worship, you dig a ditch. When you worship God, you have invited him to come and fill a place in your heart and in your life to, to uh, uh, even to uncover your sin, to uncover that distraction, to soothe your spirit and make you sensitive um, to his spirit. 
You dig ditches when you lay aside sin. You dig ditches when you lay aside distractions. You dig ditches when you worship. You, you dig ditches when you pray. When we're seeking God's face, what we're asking for? God, come into this. Come into this. Um, reveal yourself. Um, show your glory. Give me provision. Tell me what to do. When you pray, you're digging a ditch. You're doing what you can do, asking God to do what only he can do. Reading the word is digging a ditch. You know, I think people want God to speak to them. They're looking for God to speak to them, and they don't ever open this book. God said a lot to us already. And I think a lot of times it's the reason God's not saying anything to us now is because we're just not in the book. And the answers that we're asking God to give us in our prayer, he's given us in the book. So when you read God's word, I know it's difficult sometimes. I'm just like you, man. I get tired and I'm like, I don't want to read right now. I don't, I, I don't have time right now. And I get, listen, I, I, what I found out is I ain't necessarily got to sit down with the book in my lap. Um, I, can, I can hit a button on my phone. It'll, it'll read it to me. What are you doing when you read God's word? You're digging ditches. You're asking God to fill voids in your life. It's amazing the number of times that I have come to the scriptures and found God speaking. I didn't even look for it. I mean, I wasn't looking. I didn't go to a concordance and say, God, I need to know what you say about this. I just opened the book and there it was. How many of y'all done that? We've all done that. I found out that our Sunday school lessons that were probably written a year and a half ago Sometimes our, Sunday, our, our daily devotional material will speak directly to a, 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 a place in my life that I need to hear from God. And God knew that I'd need that a year and a half ago, but I would not have received it if I hadn't dug the ditch and read it. God knew when I would need it. He knew what I would need at that particular time. He gave it to them to give to me, but if I had not been digging a ditch by reading the devotion, I'd never received the blessing that God had for me in that. That's how you dig ditches. And listen, I think what God said was pretty clear. Make this valley full of ditches. And what I want to say to you is the more ditches that you dig, the more opportunities you give God to fill those empty places in your life with his provision, with his answers, with, um, uh, with, with everything that you need to do everything that he's called you to do. And you can dig one ditch, repent of sin, you give God a space. But dig another one, lay aside distractions, you give God another place. Pray, dig another ditch, and you've opened the door for God to speak into your spirit. Read, and you've dug another ditch for God to speak to you from his word. That's all that about is digging ditches, preparing your heart to receive what God only can do in your life. <clears throat> I wish we could get a handle on this because talk, people talk about being filled with the spirit. Listen, the spirit is given to us. The Spirit is not, it's not that, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of God's Spirit. Because the Spirit is a person. You either have Him or you don't. What it means to be filled with God's Spirit is that, not that you get more of God's Spirit, but that God's Spirit gets more of you. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Not that you get more of Him, you've got Him. The Bible says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If you've been saved, you have the Spirit of Christ. Um, but listen, we hold on to parts of our life. We hold on to sin. We hold on to bitterness. We hold on to distractions. We don't spend time in prayer. We don't read His Word. Um, we, we, we don't worship like we ought to worship. And when we don't do those things, that's less of us that He has. 
Sometimes the only thing that we do to dig a ditch is come church on Sunday morning. And I'm telling you, God will bless you. You'll get something from him. If you just dig that ditch, you'll get something from him. But if you, dig, if you make the valley of your life full of ditches, you give opportunity for God to begin to pour into your life and pour into your life and pour into your life and, and, and give you everything that you need and everything that you are looking for. I believe that God wants to lead us. I believe that God wants to provide for us. I believe that God wants to bless us. I believe God wants to use us. I think the biggest problem that we have is there's too much other stuff crowding him out. That's how this whole mess got started anyway. God was the last resort. After they'd done everything that they could do wrong, heading out the door. And they found themselves in a bad place. And now they want and need and can't move forward unless God does something. I think we're not seeing God lead our lives. We're not seeing God provide. We're not seeing God bless. We're not seeing God use simply because we had not dug any ditches. We had not created a space for God to fill. Make room, dig ditches. And then finally there's the miracle. I I thought it was interesting that the miracle came during worship time. The miracle came during worship time. In the morning, when the meat offering was offered, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with it. They did what they could do. They dug ditches. God did what they couldn't do. He sent water. I don't know where it came from. I saw some commentators say, it probably rained up in the mountains and, and flowed down. <clears throat> but looking at a little bit of map, honestly, it looks to me like the water <laughs> would have been flowing uphill the way that it's presented to us in the text. Maybe the fountains just broke up. I mean, God did that before too, you know. Maybe it just came up from the earth. I don't know where it came from, but I know they caught what was there. And it provided for them what they needed. Um, It provided for them water that would revive and refresh them. But it also brought that delusion and, and derision to the enemy. They looked and saw blood. They... I, maybe it's the way the sun was shining on it in the morning, but they looked at it and they're like, that, that's, that's not water, that's blood. These kings have killed each other. And I thought, um, I thought this, is, this is like the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross it and escape Pharaoh, right? I mean, they were, they were cornered up. And God parted the Red Sea so Israel could get across on dry ground. But as soon as the last Israelite foot hit dry ground and all of Pharaoh's army was in the middle of it, what did God do to Pharaoh's army? He drowned them in the midst of the sea. And so God gave them that water and made it look like blood. And the Moabites came, let's just spoil them. They're not prepared for battle. They just came to pick up the broken pieces. And Israelite... The Israelites and Judah and the nation of Edom beat them literally to a pulp, stopped up their wells, cut down their trees, tore down their cities. 
The water and the blood. That sounds familiar, don't it? Let me say something. When the enemy crosses the bloodline that's been put in your life, he puts himself in jeopardy. Abundant, victorious life in Christ comes when the Spirit of God strengthens us to stand and puts the enemy to flight. That's why Paul said, you put on the whole armor of God and you'll stand against the wiles of the devil. When God pours his spirit in our life, he not only gives us the provision to do what he's called us to do, he'll put our enemy to flight and defeat him. That's what victorious, abundant life looks like. I love what Elisha said. It's just a little thing. <laughs> it's, ain't, it's, it's a big deal for you, but it ain't a big deal for him. Yeah, God will give you water. How many times has God given you water in the past? God will give you water again. How many times has God provided for you in the past? God will provide for you again. But he's he not just going to provide for you. He's going to put a whooping on your enemies. He, he, he's going to deceive your enemies, have them in derision. They're going to come into your camp, and you're going to beat them down until there's no more left. I think God wants to display his strength to those who listen, to those who believe, to those who obey. They came to God seeking. They heard what God said. They obeyed what God said. And they received what God promised. So let me just say this to you. If you want God to work in your life, you've got to be a ditch digger. You've got to make a place for him. You've got to do what you can do. And then he'll do all the rest. Do what you can do to make space for him in your life. And he'll do the rest. Now, I, I want to I say this and I'm done. Kim, you can come on to the piano. That'll put some pressure on me. You can't save yourself. I don't care how hard you try. You can't. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. And I believe God wants to save every, every person on the planet. The Bible says it's not his will that any perish, but it all come to repentance. So what do we have to do to be saved? Humility. That's something you can do. The Bible not, it never says that God will humble us. It says humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. Humility. What's humility about? It's just coming before God and saying, I can't. Humility is coming before God and saying, I'm, I'm a wreck. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm, I, I don't know. I, can't, I don't know what to do, where to go. I don't, here I am, Lord. Humility. That's where it all starts at. What's keeping you away from God to begin with? Pride. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. What's the thing that you can do? You can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and admit that you need His help. What's next? Submission. Repent. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Confess your need for Him. We can do that. What else? Believe that if I've done what God said for me to do, then God will do what he promised me he would do, which is save me from my sin. The Bible says that God will save to the uttermost all that come unto him by the Lord Jesus Christ. When we humble ourselves and submit to him as Savior and Lord, 
believing he will save. Let's stand together. Lord, I pray you'd fill us, fill this place up with ditch diggers. We make a mess sometimes, God. I've made a bunch of messes in my life. I'm sure the mess making is not over. The messes in my life are usually self-inflicted. I rush along, not seeking your face, and my priorities get out of whack, and just get in a bad place. I pray you'd help me to remember the pattern in this story, that I need to go looking for a word from you, that I need to worship you, that I need to make some space in my life for you to pour into me. And that's when the miracle will occur. That's when you'll provide. That's when you'll bless. That's when you'll lead and guide and use. Lord, I just pray you'd speak to us today. Show us the ditches that need to be dug. Put your finger on that place in our life where we're slacking. Where we've crowded you out. And, um, and help us today to get rid of that that's in the way. And we'll praise you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your heart.